0: The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life podcast, for part 2 of the Robert Johnson story. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and if you haven't yet checked out part 1 of the Robert Johnson story, then I highly recommend you do so, in order to understand everything that occurs from here on out. Well without further ado, let's get straight back into the story from where we left off. This is part 2 of the Robert Johnson story, this is Lyrics of Their Life. When Robert Johnson kick-started his career as a professional blues musician, he would base himself in Helena, Arkansas, and would hit the road as a travelling musician once again, although this time venturing further and further from the Mississippi. After everything he had been through, Robert started drinking heavily as he was a big fan of whiskey. he smoked cigarettes, and he would disregard any previous morals he had by becoming a womaniser as he went from town to town, wooing the female members of the crowd. Robert would disappear to different towns for weeks to months on end, without telling anyone where he was headed to, or without saying goodbye. Robert would spend many nights sleeping in strange women's beds, and would then move on the next morning, before they could notice him slipping out. He was reckless, and didn't hold a care in the world anymore, as he possessed some of the most sought after skills in the land, as a blues musician. He could dance, sing, he was charming of the ladies, and could pull them in just by glancing in their direction. During performances, Robert would focus on just one particular woman for the whole show, ignoring the rest of the crowd, and would usually win them over and sleep with them after the gig. From 1933 to 1934, Robert would stay off and on at the residence of Estelle Coleman in Helena, Arkansas, where the two eventually became romantic and shared a relationship together, with Estelle being around 15 years older than him. Estelle also had a son named Robert Lockwood Jr, so for a period of time, Robert became like a father figure or a stepfather to young Robert. Robert Lockwood Jr. found Robert Johnson to be incredible and was in awe of how good he was at playing many instruments. Johnson would teach Lockwood Jr. everything there was to playing, and it's believed the two shared such a special bond that Johnson only ever revealed his secrets to Robert Jr., Robert Johnson was always paranoid of others learning his technique and would often turn his back if he sensed that they were starting to catch on to how he played guitar. The first song Johnson taught young Lockwood Jr. to play was a song that Robert Johnson would later record called Sweet Home Chicago. Robert Lockwood Jr. would also go on to become an accomplished guitar player and make a living thanks to Robert Johnson's teachings well after Robert Johnson had passed away. Robert Johnson had become so good that he was literally described as a one-man band. Helping him on his way to becoming a great guitarist would be his long fingers and small hands that gave him the perfect reach and grip around the neck of the guitar, which also made it easier to reach each fret and play incredible chords. Even creating multiple sounds at once, in sync, with his thumbs and fingers working together. Others would try and imitate him, but no one could match him, Some found his guitar sliding technique to be his trademark, where others say it was his unique ability to play guitar, like a piano, forming the foundations of rock and roll, and even the future of pop music. To get around to different towns, Robert would travel with other blues musicians, or individuals, who were searching for work in other towns. Together they would work as a team to hitch illegal rides on freight trains, as they had little to no money, and would instead save it for food and booze. In order to catch the train, without being detected, one man would hide in the bushes and wait for the all clear, and then call the rest out, as they would all grab on and hide in empty carriages, with their guitars strapped to their backs. Then when they arrive at their destination, they would either jump off at the nearest station, or even jump off of moving trains. Robert would build such a solid reputation when passing through towns, with his status serving him well when he passed back through, bringing more people to come watch him every time. By the mid-30s, Robert had built quite a strong following and reputation, but more than anything, he just wanted to record his own music. So in 1936, Robert ventured to Jackson, Mississippi, in search of a reputable music and record store owner named Henry Columbus Spear, or as he is better known, as H.C. Spear as hc spear had a great working relationship with many record labels and acted as a scout for them spear had already discovered a number of talents such as skip james sun house willie brown charlie Patton, and another eerie style blues musician named tommy johnson hc spear was well known for finding these talents and robert knew that he was the man that could take him further during 1936 Robert auditioned for a contract with Vocalium Records, with Spear watching on. Robert blew Spear away in this audition, so Spear instantly informed ARC label salesman Ernie Erdle about Robert, who then referred Robert to Don Law, who was an English-American man based in Dallas, Texas, and was the manager of the American Recording Company, or also known as ARC Records. It would be Don Law who would help record Robert's first-ever tracks, and bringing his music to life. Don then organised to have Ernie bring Robert to San Antonio, Texas, for his first recording session. Don Law was a busy man, recording musicians all up the south of America, and he was excited to record Robert, as he found him interesting, and different to anything he had recorded before. While Robert of course was very talented, and earned his chance at a recording session, there was also many talented musicians, that didn't ever get the chance in those days to record their music so many originals that might well have been big hits were only heard first hand on the streets, at juke joints and in the fields. As Robert was Don's guest, he looked after his new star talent well and put Robert up in a boarding house. Don came to Robert and told him to get a good night's rest as they would begin recording in the morning. Despite his warning, Don suspected that the bright lights and excitement of San Antonio streets would get the better of Robert and that he would ignore this warning and that's exactly what happened. As Don left to go have some dinner with his wife and some friends, Robert ventured out to the streets to explore. Not too far into his aimless wandering did Robert get picked up by the police and was suspected of vagrancy, as they thought he was either homeless, a scavenger or a thief and in these times, racism most definitely played a part in his arrest, essentially getting arrested for walking the streets as a black man in a predominantly white city, despite just going for a stroll and minding his own business. As Don sat down for dinner in the hotel dining area, he was just about to take his first mouthful of dinner before he was called to the phone only to find out it was the local San Antonio police on the other end, informing Don that they had arrested a man named Robert Johnson who claims to know him and that he is working for Don. Don confirmed this was the case and left his dinner to go bail out Robert who had been placed in a cell at the station. Don arrived at the station to find that Robert had obviously copped an unfair hiding by the police. And after persuading the police to release Robert, Don headed back to the boarding house with Robert and told him this time to remain where he was, so nothing else happens to him. Once again, Don wished him a good night and gave Robert 45 cents to pay for his breakfast in the morning, before Don returned to his dinner with friends and his wife once again. As Don started eating... Yet again he was called to the phone to hear Robert on the other end this time around. Don asked him what the problem was with Robert claiming he was lonesome and that there was a woman there that would like to share his bed but he didn't have enough money to pay for it, only the 45 cents he gave him for breakfast. Don hilariously agreed to pay as long as he got some sleep afterwards. The very next day, after the hectic shenanigans of the night before, on the 23rd of November, 1936, Robert entered the makeshift and temporary recording studio located in room 414 in the exclusive Gunter Hotel in San Antonio, Texas. Over the next few days, Robert would record his first ever tracks and he would realise a lifelong dream of his. Everything from Mexican blues to hillbilly was being recorded in the makeshift studio that saw two separate hotel rooms become one with the recording equipment and mixing desk in one room, with Don Law and his engineer, Vinnie Liebler, and a cord that ran through to the opposing room, connecting them to the recording devices in the room, where Robert was seated on a chair, ready to play up a storm. Blues musician Smokey Montgomery had just finished up recording his tracks when Robert entered the room, where a complimentary bottle of whiskey could be found for all the musicians to share, as a laid-back setting allowed for the best possible recordings. Don would have Robert perform everything he knew and would pick the best ones from the lot to go to print. Despite never being in a studio recording session ever before in his life, Robert seemed to know exactly what he was doing and the exact sound he wanted to go for. To create the interesting dark and eerie sound we all know well today, Robert turned his chair to the wall along with the microphone, facing away from where Don was situated. Don at first thought that Robert was being shy or that he didn't want him watching him and picking up on his technique. But playing his guitar and singing against the wall created a unique effect, almost like a metallic sound, and like two guitars were being played at once, instead of just one. Utilising this incredibly witty technique, Robert captured the exact sound he was looking for, and it would prove to be a masterstroke. Don Wall would produce the tracks for Robert, where mixing at the time was quite simplistic and was done on the spot, using just two knobs on a mixing desk, rather than all the high-tech equipment that makes the job so much easier, but complex today. With most tracks, Don had Robert record two versions of each song, which would all later be released over time. Over four days, Robert recorded 16 tracks in total, but not all tracks were released before Robert's death. For each song he recorded, He received a payment of $15, which added up to a payday of $255, which was quite an impressive sum of money for the time period. While Robert's recordings were sent to be published by the Vocalion record label, Robert returned to the road performing from town to town. It was on Robert's travels performing in different towns during late 1936 where Robert would first meet a friendly rival, in fellow blues musician. Johnny Shines, who was 20 at the time, and believed to be around 4 years younger than Robert. They met for the very first time in a town called Helena in Arkansas, just across from the Mississippi River, where Robert had been staying from time to time with Estelle Coleman and Robert Lockwood Jr. Blues music was absolutely thriving in this area at the time, and Johnny had heard about the talented Robert Johnson, and that he was now the best around, so he wanted to join him on the road and check it out for himself, and build a friendly rivalry. Robert would stand outside on the street corner, playing his guitar and singing, while Johnny began standing on the corner opposite him, attempting to steal some of his listeners by singing over the top of Robert. At times it worked, but Robert was extremely talented, so the competition was tough. Everyone would stop and listen, with very few resisting the temptation to ignore how good he was. Their rivalry soon turned into a friendship, and Johnny and Robert would both travel and gig together, or as a solo act in different towns, as they travelled with each other well into 1937. Johnny Shines believes he never once saw Robert practice playing his music, and it was like he knew it off by heart, and didn't need to. As he said, quote, He had a built-in computer. Everything he heard was there. All he had to do was push the button. Johnny Shines remembers that when their fingers got tired, that they would put the guitar down and dance for money instead. Robert apparently didn't just play original tracks, he also played covers such as Danny Boy and anything from folk and polka to Irish and Jewish songs. Playing covers were important as you had to play the hits or the songs that everyone knows to earn more money before you could start playing your own stuff. The music Robert played would emanate the pain and sadness of the time, but wouldn't delve into darker themes like the devil until much later on. Despite money being quite scarce in the 1930s, Robert was that good that people would pay him anyway. Every now and then Robert and Johnny would play together, but they often earned so much more when they played as solo acts. Then together they could hit the town, get some food, and share some whiskey around this time robert would use stella branded steel guitars but his main guitar was a budget acoustic gibson kalamazoo sold as a cheaper option during the great depression johnny said that they felt free anywhere they laid their head was home to them and no one could tell them when how or where they had to work they just went where they pleased, and they had the talent to back them up financially despite this Johnny claimed to keep earning money, they did have to keep moving to new places, so those that hadn't heard you yet, more than likely would pay you more, than those that had already seen them play. Occasionally the police would ask them to leave, when they were busking, but most of the time they allowed them to continue. At times they were met with racist remarks, and horrible slandering when passing through different towns, that had a larger population of white people. Johnny believes that while everyone seemed to enjoy their music, some just never could come to terms with them being black musicians, as he said, quote, They just didn't like the face that was doing the music. It was while they travelled together via freight train, where Johnny had the chance to chat to Robert. As Johnny described Robert, as a loner who liked his own company, he didn't like getting close to others, and that he was the type that talked a lot about how great his last girl was, how his music is going, where he had travelled to so far, how much money he had earned, and who he ran into along the way. But he wasn't the type to open up about himself or his private life, and for as long as he knew him, Johnny didn't even know about his past, with his parents, his wives, or his son. Johnny also said that Robert always seemed to have stuff going through his head, but that he was a very honest man that would always be up front and tell you if he had a problem with you. At first, Robert and Johnny usually got off and on at the same place and would go busk and then catch another train somewhere else together. But Johnny also said that Robert got to the stage where he would often take off on his own without telling anyone where he was going or why. He would be there one minute and next minute he was completely gone, with no trace. This led some to believe that Robert had hellhounds on his trail and that perhaps he was running from them. Johnny liked Robert and often tried to travel at the same time as him but often lost him on the road as Johnny would only just be arriving in a town or a city and Robert would only just be leaving it. Robert did his best to keep his private life separate from his musical aspirations, and when staying in different towns, he would occasionally go by different names such as reverting back to Robert Spencer, or making up new ones, such as Robert Moore, Robert Barstow, Robert Dusty, or even his favourite alter ego, Robert Sachs, which he appeared to use quite a bit. Robert would also change his first name altogether on occasions, and was said to have even adopted new personalities with these names. All of these extreme measures raised some questions as to why he did this, suggesting perhaps it wasn't just to remain private, and perhaps he had certain people after him, either for money, or for upsetting some woman's husband, when he would try and flirt or sleep with them, or simply that he enjoyed being someone other than himself for a change. Robert would entertain working people from all over, and would dress professionally wearing a suit and a fedora that he would use to catch nickels and dimes in, that people would flick his way. To keep his suit nice and neat, he would change into a spare pair of clothes and roll it up and place it in a paper bag. When he got to the next stop, he would just unroll it and it was like it had just been ironed or pressed. As time went on and Robert started earning more money and becoming more popular, it started to go to his head a lot more. Robert began drinking a lot of whiskey, which was becoming an obvious problem at this stage. He started getting involved in fights usually starting it by verbally taunting others or cursing God and religion, and then leaving it up to Johnny to finish. Johnny recalls that Robert would get his head punched in sometimes and started to just have no respect for anybody, including himself. Some feared him and others hated him for his behaviour, leading many to believe he was in fact the devil reincarnated or possessed by a demon, and being called names like Man of Hell and Man of the Devil. Johnny said he even copped a few hits for him at times, as Robert started losing himself, and that Robert got to a point where he didn't care what he was doing, or who he was hurting in the process. Johnny, like many close to him, said that when he wasn't drinking, he was a really nice guy, but then when he started drinking, it just wrecked him. As soon as he picked up a bottle of whiskey, he was said to be a completely different person. At one stage after losing Robert, Johnny met back up with him in West Memphis, where they stayed together at a place called the Hunch Hotel. They got settled into their room before they ventured out to get some food and drinks, only to return to find that the hotel was on fire and almost burnt to the ground. Luckily, their instruments weren't destroyed in the fire, as they carried them at all times, but unfortunately some people did lose their lives, and they were very lucky that they had decided to go out for refreshments. With nowhere to stay while in town, they decided instead to hit the road on foot along Highway 61. Robert, who hadn't really used his harmonica as a recording musician, decided to pull it out and started playing it to keep them entertained as they travelled. Eventually, the pair's mood began to lift and they started to dance, sing, and Robert continued to play his harmonica. Their fun idea designed to pass the time soon turned into a gig on the side of the road when cars travelling on the highway began to pull up and enjoy the show. Soon enough, Traffic was backed up quite some way and they were earning more money at one time than they ever had. The traffic jam became so bad that the highway patrol vehicle had to come by and direct traffic through due to their performance. Eventually the pair were asked to move on by the highway patrol where they travelled to the small city of Steel in Missouri. They had earned so much money on the highway that they entered a local music shop where they each bought themselves a brand new guitar and continued on their travels. When Johnny started getting in his way too much, Robert eventually went his own way and ventured up the Mississippi, all the way to New York and even Canada via train, according to reports, with the pair losing each other for as long as six to eight months at one stage before reuniting. Johnny claims they also travelled to St. Louis, Chicago, New York and Canada together, only for Robert to often take off once again without any warning or goodbye. With Johnny quoted as saying, Robert was a very friendly person, even though he was sulky at times, you know. And I hung around Robert for quite a while. One evening he disappeared. He was kind of a peculiar fellow. Robert would be standing up playing someplace, playing like nobody's business. At about that time, it was a hustle with him, as well as a pleasure. And money would be coming from all directions. But Robert would just pick up and walk off, and leave you standing there playing. And you wouldn't see Robert no more, maybe in two to three weeks. So Robert and I, we began journeying off. I was just matter of fact, tagging along. Eventually, the pair completely lost track of each other in the summer of 1938, and would never see each other again. While Robert and Johnny were travelling on and off together, through the record label Vocalion, Robert Johnson's very first single was released in March 1937, on a phonograph or a gramophone 78-inch record and included the lead A-side single, Terraplane Blues, and the B-side, Kind-Hearted Woman Blues. At the time, Terraplane Blues would become Robert Johnson's biggest hit while he was alive, and was a moderate success in the Mississippi Delta area, selling around 5,000 copies. It would become his biggest commercial success, and was heard on radios and jukeboxes all over the Mississippi. The importance of this song's message would without a doubt influence the future of blues music and especially rock and roll, with Robert's ability to mask the true darker and sexually orientated meaning of the lyrics, allowing the song to be heavily rotated on radio without being banned. On the surface, Terraplane Blues makes reference to the 1932 release by the Hudson Motor Company of the Terraplane Motor Vehicle, appearing to be a celebration of the new vehicle. And this is obvious with Robert referring throughout the song to changing oil, checking under the hood, and driving the terraplane. But when assessing the lyrics more closely, it's clear to see that the song is actually referring to Robert's woman being unfaithful with another man while he's been gone. And he returns to find her not as intimate with him, almost like she has already checked out of the relationship and is thinking of the other man. Robert attempts to keep the spark alive, but it appears to be no use, as the lyrics read... When I feel so lonesome, you hear me when I moan. Who been driving my plane for you since I've been gone? I'd said I flash your lights, Mama. Your horn won't even blow. got a short in this connection. Well, babe, it's way down below. I'm gonna heist your hood, Mama. I'm bound to check your oil. I'm gonna get down in this connection. Oh, well, keep on tangling with these wires. And when I mash down on your little starter, then your spark plug will give me fire. The importance of this song and Robert's witty ability to mask the deeper or sexual meaning with another more light-hearted and radio-friendly meaning is, believe it or not, all around us today in the music we hear. With this same theme of cars being used as metaphors for sexual innuendo, for example, Little Red Corvette by Prince, Hey Porsche by Nelly, Trampled Under foot by Led Zeppelin, Rihanna with Shut Up and Drive, and the list goes on and on on the b-side was kind-hearted woman blues and by this point everyone was going crazy for his music and wanting more this song was actually the very first he ever recorded and includes a short guitar solo that would be his only one heard on a recording during his career robert appears to almost mimic a song by bumblebee slim called cruel-hearted woman blues only for differences in the wording of the lyrics but the lyrics are much more complex in robert's version The song appears to refer to Robert's many travels and stopping by to enjoy the company of a particular woman, only to realise she isn't as sweet as he first thought, and that she doesn't share the same affection that he does for her, leading him to excessively drink. As he sings the lines, i got a kind hearted woman, do anything in this world for me. But these evil hearted woman man, they will not let me be. I love my baby, my baby don't love me. And I really love that woman, can't stand to leave her be. Ain't but the one thing makes Mr. Johnson drink. was worried about how you treat me, baby, I began to think. Oh babe, my life don't feel the same. You breaks my heart when you call Mr. So-and-so's name. She's a kind-hearted woman. She studies evil all the time. You wells to kill me as to have it on your mind. Other songs released under label Vocalion from the San Antonio recording session included I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, Sweet Home Chicago, Ramblin' on My Mind, When You Got a Good Friend, Phonograph Blues, If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day, 3220 Blues, an acoustic-only piece titled Dead Shrimp Blues, a song about work and gambling titled Last Fair Deal Gone Down, and a cover of Sun House's track Walkin' Blues. While some of the best tracks released at the time included Come On In My Kitchen, They're Red Hot, Crossroad Blues, and Preachin' Blues "Up Jump the Devil. Much of Robert's music from this time covered the themes of relationships with women while on the road, life as a travelling musician, the difficult times being a black man in the Mississippi and of course songs about the devil. Dust My Broom was the second track that Robert ever recorded and would become an ever popular staple for any blues musician who would become renowned for Robert's use of the slider in the song. Like many of Robert's songs, he would take what he had observed or heard from other blues musicians in the Delta and adapt his very own style and lyrics to make the song his own. With the song being noted for Robert's use of a boogie style rhythm pattern that is regarded as a major innovation in blues music, as he appears to play the guitar almost like a piano. In Dust My Broom, Robert typically sings once again about his woman getting him down in true blues fashion. After being on the road and missing his girl while he was away, it seems Robert overhears or returns to find she is seeing another man, and decides to concede he has lost his woman, and decides to move on and search for another. As he sings the lines, I'm gonna get up in the morning, I believe I'll dust my broom. Girlfriend, the black man you've been loving, girlfriend can get my room. I don't want no woman, wants every downtown man she meet. She's a no good donny. They shouldn't low her on the street. Robert then expresses that he will look as far as other countries to find the right girl for him, as he sings, I'm gonna write a letter, telephone every town I know. If I can't find her in West Helena, she must be in East Monroe. I'm on call-up Chinese, see is my good girl over there. If I can't find her on Philippines Island, she must be in Ethiopia somewhere. Robert continues on with the theme of being mistreated by his woman and leaving her in the song Rambling On My Mind, with the family of Ike Zimmerman, later claiming it was in their opinion written by Ike, as they heard him playing it often, but there is a lack of solid evidence to suggest this. In the song Phonograph Blues... Robert sings once again about being cheated on by his woman, with another man, suggesting this was something that had very likely occurred, and weighed heavily on his mind, to continue writing about this subject. One of Robert's best recordings, was titled Come On In My Kitchen, and is still regarded today, as one of his all-time classic songs. It's believed that two recordings were completed of the song, with one being too mournful and sad, and the other being more upbeat after being told to lift the tempo, as they feared the somber version might not sell as well. Johnny Shines remembers that it was a true showstopper back in the day, as he was quoted as saying, One time in St. Louis, we were playing one of the songs that Robert would like to play, with someone once in a great while. Come on in my kitchen. He was playing very slow and passionately, and when we had to quit, I noticed no one was saying anything. Then I realised they were crying, both women and men. In the song's melody, it's believed Robert was inspired by the piano sequence in Leroy Carr's How Long Blues from 1928, along with other influences from popular songs at the time. The song has a relaxed, slow pace to it, but it's the lyrics that are most interesting. Robert at first sings about letting a woman into his home to escape the cold winter rain and wind, as he imitates the sound of wind with his guitar. In the lyrics, he falls for her, and the two become intimate. He then learns that she is in fact somebody else's woman, perhaps of even a close friend, only for that man to get her back in the end, and Robert to be left lonely, as he sings, You better come on in my kitchen, Well, it's gonna be raining outdoors. Ah, the woman I love, took from my best friend, some joker got lucky, stole her back again. One particular line has often come under much intrigue and analysis and that line reads Oh she's gone, I know she won't come back, I've taken the last nickel out of her nation sack. A nation sack was believed to be a sack that juke joint keepers would carry with donations of items and money or in this case nickels as donations for holding entertainment to keep the juke joint running. Although those associated with hoodoo believe that the nation sack was a luck charm or mojo bag that was worn around the woman's waist, and holds sexual powers, referring to a love spell, and once those nickels are all removed or spent, the love spell wears off, and in Robert's case, the woman no longer holds control over him sexually, leaving Robert free to invite anyone he wants into his life, or in this case, into his kitchen. Released on the very same record as Come On In My Kitchen, was another brilliant track titled Their Red Hot, In this song, Robert Johnson provides his listeners with a completely different approach to much of his other tracks, as he refers to the hot and spicy Mexican-style food, tamales, and a woman selling them as a vendor on the street. The song is played in an up-tempo, fast, bopping-style beat, known at the time as a hokum, and similar to ragtime. The song was very popular in Duke Joints when played live, and the catchy beat and fun lyrics would see everyone up on their feet dancing to the line, Hot tamales they their red hot, yes she got them for sale. While it's obvious Robert appears to be singing here about hot tamales, it has been suggested, and likely could be the case in regards to his other tracks, that Robert is referring to sexual connotations. In fact that he could be referring to a sex worker or prostitute selling her body on the street, Of the hot tamales perhaps being a metaphor for her breasts. It raises the question, could Robert have wrote the song and been referring to the woman he spent the night with the night before his first recording session, paid for by Don Law? Or was he simply referring to a woman just selling hot tamales? I guess we'll never really know the truth. The song 3220 Blues speaks of the Winchester ammunition, known as the 3220 rounds, usually utilised in handguns and small rifles. It was the first small game lever action ammunition that Winchester had ever produced back in 1882. The song was based on a similar track by Skip James titled 2020 Blues, and it's believed Robert was a keen fan of Skip's, with some claiming he copied parts of his music for his song Come On in My Kitchen as well. One of Robert's all time classic tracks, Crossroad Blues, or commonly known as Crossroads, was released during May of 1937. The song was played with Robert's acoustic slide guitar and spoke of the famous myth of Robert venturing down to the crossroads to sell his soul to the devil, in return to become a famous blues musician. Robert, of course, played on these rumours and hype surrounding this myth and decided to lay down a track that would ultimately add to suggestions he was under the devil's spell or possessed by demons. Robert refers to himself in the song as Bob And also references Willie Brown, who with Sun House were responsible for Robert leaving town to potentially take himself to the crossroads and then return to prove his ability. As Robert sings, I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy, now, save poor Bob if you please. Standing at the crossroad, tried to flag a ride. As he continues, I believe to my soul, now poor Bob is sinking down. You can run, you can run, tell my friend Willie Brown. Finally, the song Preachin' Blues Up Jump the Devil appears to speak about the theme of blues music being associated with the devil in the eyes of the Christians. As Robert sarcastically sings about the blues and the devil taking him over, or possessing him like the Christians, would have him believe. Robert refers to himself as Bob once again in the song, and sings about himself in the third person, suggesting that the devil has overtaken him, and is speaking for him, or about him. This theme continues into his later work as well. The song sees Robert playing his guitar at a fast pace, with a plucking style, which could be one of his catchiest hooks of all time, and would be a perfect example of a track that would influence future generations and rock music. With Vocalion Records releasing a majority of Robert's recordings from March through to August 1937, Vocalion was so impressed by him that they got Don Law to schedule Robert in for a second recording session. On the fourth floor at 508 Park Avenue, Dallas, Texas, in a large storage warehouse that was once the Vitagraph or Warner Brothers Motion Pictures studio building, Robert Johnson recorded another 13 tracks, over a two-day period on June 19th and 20th, 1937. Once again, Robert would pass by Smokey Montgomery, who had just finished recording some tracks himself, noticing he was dripping in sweat. That day, temperatures were sweltering hot, as it was smack bang in the middle of a Dallas summer. They had decided to record on a weekend, as there would be less traffic noise as opposed to weekdays, and that way they would be able to open some windows. But that day just happened to be busy down on the streets, so they had to shut the windows, adding to the heat and making for an uncomfortable session. With three small fans set up around Robert, in between takes, someone would run by and switch them on or off to keep Robert as cool as possible, and to reduce picking up a humming sound during the recording session from the fans. Despite all the obstacles, Robert produced some of his greatest work yet, impressing Dawn and Vocalion once again. The 13 tracks Robert recorded over those two days were released via three labels this time around, including Vocalion, Conqueror, and Perfect Records, and included the songs 4 From Until Late, I'm a Steady Rollin' Man, Stones in My Passway, Little Queen of Spades, Malted Milk, Hellhound on My Trail, Drunken Hearted Man, Me and the Devil Blues, Stop Breaking Down Blues, Travelling Riverside Blues, Honeymoon Blues love in vain blues and a cover of milk cows calf blues little did anyone know that these would be the final ever recordings of robert johnson's life some even claimed that the second session gave off a vibe that he was running out of life and like he knew his days were numbered this of course wasn't far from the truth as he was living quite recklessly at the time without a doubt robert's second bout of recordings appeared to be much more dark in reference to devil or losing control over his life a lot more than the first session. In the song Stones in My Pathway, Robert sings once again about himself as Bob in the third person, and suggests that he is expressing feelings of depression, betrayal, and loneliness, that he has many obstacles in his way, and that there doesn't seem to be any happiness in sight, or as some would believe, that the devil has just about taken over him, as perhaps Robert plays on the myth once again. As he sings the lines, I got stones in my pathway, and all my roads seem dark at night. I have pains in my heart, they have taken my appetite. The song becomes much more dark, and suggests Robert is facing a battle with his enemies or perhaps the devil, as he sings, I have a woman that I'm loving boy, but she don't mean a thing. My enemies have betrayed me, have overtaken poor Bob at last, and he is one thing certainly, they have stones all in my pass. Now you're trying to take my life and all my loving too. You laid a pathway for me now. What are you trying to do? I'm crying, please. Please let us be friends. And when you hear me howling in my pathway, rider, please open your door and let me in. I've got three legs to truck home, boys. Please don't block my road. I've been feeling ashamed about my rider, babe. I'm booked and I got to go. Upon further investigation, according to author and musician Deborah Devi, stones in my pathway perhaps refers to the path in which a hoodoo victim supposedly takes when stones are laid down in a cross pattern and a button or piece of clothing from that individual is placed in the centre of the stones and laid out across a walkway. Therefore, when the intended hoodoo victim walks over these stones that are in their way, They cross the threshold and the curse or jinx is then placed on them and is referred to as crossing the line. In the track Malted Milk, it first of all appears to be a straightforward song until examining the lyrics closely to find Robert is once again referring to evil spirits or the devil and attempting to ward them and his negative blues away by drinking lots of malted milk as some sort of deterrent as he sings, I keep drinking malted milk. Trying to drive my blues away. And I have a funny funny feeling. And I'm talking all out my head. Malted milk. Malted milk. Keep rushing to my head. And then the line. My doorknob keeps on turning. Must be spooks around my bed. I have a warm old feeling. And the hair rising. On my head. It should be noted. That mould is used as an alternative type of milkshake. Where a spoonful is added to the mix. To give a malt flavour. Malt is also a by-product of wheat, suggesting that when it is allowed to germinate and be brewed like barley, that it can be turned into an alcohol-like beer. It appears Robert is singing about getting drunk from the malted milk, as it is, quote, rushing to my head, and I'm talking out of my head. But also could refer to him being possessed or taken over by evil spirits, or the devil, which is in line with the stories of the crossroads, and the lines referring to the spooks around his bed. I'm a steady rolling man, and from 4 until late, speak of the troubles of love and relationships, but in particular in the track, From 4 Until Late, Robert speaks of moving from town to town, loving different women, and the difficulty of working on the land, and providing for a woman, as he produces a great philosophical line that reads, A man is like a prisoner, and he's never satisfied. In the track, Little Queen of Spades, Robert sings about forming a relationship, with a gambling woman and putting their business minds together to make lots of money together. In the song Drunken Hearted Man, which could be one of Robert's most underrated tracks, Robert delivers one of his most autobiographical songs of his career. Robert sings about being neglected by his father as a child and being raised alone by his mother and even goes as far as referring to his father as being dead to him as he sings the lines My father died and left me. My poor mother done the best she could. Every man like that game you call love, but it don't mean no man no good. He appears to sing about the many troubles and sins he has committed in his life, stemming from his broken family and from not having a father figure, leading him to become a drinker, womaniser and sinner who is afraid of settling down. Despite appearing as if he would like to change his ways, stop drinking and be a lot happier, He feels as though he can't as he sings the lines I'm a poor drunken hearted man, my life seems so misery and if I could change my way of living it would mean so much to me. This makes a lot of sense as Robert was reportedly a very heavy drinker into his last years of life being a heavy whiskey drinker while depression at the time wouldn't have been easily diagnosed or accepted. It's evident in this song and those prior to this But Robert undoubtedly suffered with depression, which is understandable given the harsh times and his life experiences, which in turn led him to picking up the bottle with no support. Robert also claims his waywardness and womaniser ways are due to him believing that once he gets tied down to a woman, that it will be the end of him, as he sings, I'm a drunken hearted man, and sin was the cause of it all, and the day that you get weak for no good woman, that's the day that you're bound to fall. Robert also can't understand why he persists to sleep with women casually, as they are often too much trouble, occasionally married, and through his life experiences, he should know better, as he sings the lines, I've been dogged and I've been driven, ever since I left my mother's home, and I can't see the reason why, that I can't leave these no good women's alone. During the song, Robert plays a slow tempo guitar tune, and his voice howls beautifully, to the somber lyrics, creating a masterpiece. In the brilliant, catchy, bopping beat of Stop Breaking Down Blues, Robert once again refers to those no-good women that will only bring you down in true blues fashion, as he claims the more you fool around with them, the more likely your reputation will become ruined. In Travelling Riverside Blues, Robert sings about meeting a girl on the riverside of the Mississippi, who's in an abusive marriage, where he asks her to meet him down in a place called Friars Point where they can head to a Duke joint or barrel house and have a good time and make love afterwards. As he sings, If your man get personal, want you to have your fun, best come on back to Friars Point Mama and Barrel House all night long. Robert then appears to brag about the many women he has slept with in different places, only to realise this one in Friars Point is very special. As he sings, I got women's in Vicksburg, clean on into Tennessee, but my Friars Point rider. Now hops all over me. Robert continues to mention that she has money with teeth crowned with gold. And how he feels like this one won't be easy to leave. As he has built a connection with her. As he sings. She got a mortgage on my body. Now a line on my soul. He decides instead of leaving her behind. He'll take her on the road with him. And they can make love all up the Mississippi. As he sings. Lord I'm going to Rosedale. Gonna take my rider by my side. We Can Still Barrel House Baby on the Riverside. To wrap up the song, Robert delivers one of his most sexualised lyrics of his career, when he sings about his penis, with the line, Now you can squeeze my lemon, till the juice run down my leg. The song would be covered many years later down the track, by Led Zeppelin, who retitled it The Lemon Song, altered some lyrics to make it more sexual, and it even became a modest hit for the legendary band. In the song Hellhound on my trail, Robert would deliver one of his most popular pieces of music of his whole career as he uses a slide guitar once again and provides a brilliant somber style vocal. While Hellhounds had been mentioned in blues music many times before, Robert formed his own story surrounding the subject and made the topic his own. In this song, Robert sings about Hellhounds following him, While he travels, as he attempts to evade them, leading many to believe straight away that he is in fact referring to the devil's hellhounds chasing him down to finish him off, now that the devil was done with him. The legend goes that once an individual who had sold their soul saw the hellhounds three times, it would mark their end. As Robert sings, I've got to keep moving, blue's fallen down like hail, and the day keeps on worrying me, there's a hellhound on my trail. Others believe that Robert is actually singing about the fear of lynch mobs in the Mississippi area, as his own stepfather had once been chased up to Memphis by a lynch mob that usually are accompanied by actual hounds used commonly to sniff out the deserters. Robert sings about being on the run and how he just needs his woman by his side to keep him company. But what is most interesting is the line that refers to the use of placing hot foot powder around the door. This was believed to be a form of hoodoo that would keep away unwanted people, spirits or entities, or in this case hellhounds. But more than likely the powder would stop bloodhounds sniffing out their target, as the hot powder would burn their nostrils, and they wouldn't be able to smell the person hiding indoors. Continuing on with the theme spoken about in Hellhounds on My Trail, the song Me and the Devil Blues saw Robert singing about the devil coming to take his soul as his time had run out. Robert expresses in the song that the devil has made him do some terrible things to women, and then walks side by side with him, accepting his time is up. Robert then delivers an eerie but unforgettable line that reads, Baby, I don't care where you bury my body when I'm dead and gone. You may bury my body, ooh, down by the highway side, so my old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. There are a couple of lines in particular that are also quite disturbing, Suggesting that Robert has laid his hands on his woman, and while he appears to regret this, accepting that he needs to be punished by the devil for his actions, it's almost as if he wants to put all of the blame on the devil for his actions, instead of taking accountability, as he sings, And I'm gonna beat my woman, until I get satisfied, she say you don't see why, that you will dog me round, it must be an old evil spirit, so deep down in the ground. Robert had many girlfriends and short flings on his travels after Coletta had passed away, which is evident in his songs and by the stories his friends tell. The women apparently found him to be cute, very attractive, and that he had a way with the ladies. He occasionally shacked up with a woman, but it was never for too long. The longest he had ever been with a woman on the road, after Coletta, was six months, and that was with a woman named Willie May Powell. With Willie May, Robert would sit on her back porch playing songs for her and her friends, and would even write a song for her called Love in Vain," despite never actually getting the chance to play it for her, and she wouldn't even hear or know about the song until 1992, well after his death. She was very much in love with Robert, and no doubt Robert loved her back. As time went on, Robert told her he was off to make more records, and to be a star, and never returned. Robert had asked Willie May to come with him on his journey, but Willie May admitted she was too scared of being on the road. In the song, Robert uses a train leaving a station as a metaphor for losing Willie May. Together they venture to the train station, only to learn that she will not be joining him on his journey. He refers to his love being in vain, as he is taking a big risk by leaving love for his career and with her rejecting the idea of joining him on the road. Robert feels as though it may be a selfish decision on his part to give up love, but at the same time he feels he has no choice as he sings, and I followed her to the station with a suitcase in my hand. Well it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell, when all your love's in vain. When the train rolled up to the station, and I looked her in the eye, while I was lonesome, I felt so lonesome, and I could not help but cry, all my love's in vain. Robert expresses a feeling of guilt for not staying, and also slight anger that she didn't join him. As the train leaves the station, he uses the lights of the train to describe the situation, with the blue light representing his blues and sadness of leaving her behind, and the red lights as an example of losing his mind, which he most definitely did towards the end of his life. Towards the end of the song, Robert can be heard howling Willie Mae's name, as he is sad to be leaving her behind, as he truly did love her. In the song Honeymoon Blues, it's often been overlooked that this song could perhaps also be referring to the love Robert shared for Willie May, except the name had been changed to Betty May. Robert sings about returning one day to his lover Betty May in the hopes of one day marrying her, and that she had lifted him from his life of depression, loneliness, and misery as he sings, Betty May, Betty May, you shall be my wife someday. I want a little sweet girl that will do anything that I say. Betty May, you was my heartstring, you was my destiny, and you rolls across my mind baby, each and every day. Little girl, little girl, my life seems so misery, baby I guess it must be love now. Lord that's taken effect on me, someday I will return, with the marriage license in my hand. I'm gonna take you for a honeymoon, in some long long distant land. While Robert could simply just be referring to a woman he met on his travels named Betty May, It's interesting that Robert mentions going away, as he did with Willie May, with the intentions of one day coming back to her, which perhaps he did before he passed. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do, it just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you could leave the podcast a positive 5 star review on iTunes, as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, You can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast and you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or, you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyricsoflifepod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work, so your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and buy me a coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. In late 1937, most of Robert's recordings had been released barring some that would be released in early 1938, and those released much later after his death. As the summer of 1938 rolled around, and Robert was back on the road as a travelling musician, he searched for a new purpose, after regretfully leaving behind his most recent love interests, of Willie May, and also his old friend Johnny Shines, who he had left behind in Arkansas. Johnny decided he didn't want to head down to the Mississippi as he was concerned about the recent spike in lynchings, at the time, and feared for his life. Robert would ultimately never see the pair again and he found himself travelling to Friars Point, Robinsonville and Greenwood in the Mississippi area, all on his own. It was when he arrived in the area that he would visit family, including his half-sister Carrie, who he often wrote a letter to, telling her all about his travels. With Robert leaving behind key people in his life, during 1938, he would make a surprise second visit at the residence of Robert's former girlfriend, Vergie, at her grandfather's place, where Robert's son Claude was staying. For all these years, Robert had not seen his son, and Claude was about 7 years old by this time, when Robert turned up. But Vergie's grandfather once again wouldn't allow this to happen, and said that he didn't want the devil's music in Claude's life. Claude could see his father out the window of the house as Robert decided to just hand the grandfather a handful of cash that he wanted to go towards taking care of his son as Robert turned and walked away and they never saw each other again. Some often wonder, did Robert know his time was running out after visiting his son after all these years and leaving him with money to help him get by. When Robert Johnson arrived on a Saturday in the township of Greenwood Town, Robert ran into a fellow African-American blues musician named David Honeyboy Edwards, who was standing on the corner of Johnson Street playing his Gibson guitar. Honeyboy was originally from Shaw, Mississippi, and after being taught how to play guitar by his father, he left home age 14 to travel around and play the blues with Big Joe Williams. Ever since, he too had been travelling around playing music. Robert and Honeyboy both performed in a Duke joint that night and started drinking whiskey together afterwards. As they got talking, Robert brought up the conversation of their most recent encounters with women while on the road and brought up Willie May Powell. As small as the world was, Honeyboy spoke up and told Robert that Willie May was actually his cousin. The pair formed a friendship afterwards that would last until the very end as the pair travelled to Duke joints gigging together in the area and drinking together. Honey Boy even believes that Robert told him that he ventured to the crossroads and sold his soul, although he didn't really believe the story. Robert at the time was believed to be in quite a self-destructive state, sleeping with countless women, drinking almost all the time, and getting in fights with as many people as he could. The myth of him being possessed by the devil had almost become reality, as he had completely lost his way, and any shred of self-respect he once had was completely gone. Everyone that knew him at the time described him as he loved his whiskey and he was crazy about women. On the 13th of August 1938, Robert Johnson and Honeyboy were both hired to perform at a local juke joint called the Three Forks, located on the outskirts of Greenwood in the Mississippi area. The Three Forks were where the highway meets at a three-fork type position. A fitting name for a venue where the so-called man of the devil, Robert Johnson, would meet his fate and this gig would prove to be Robert's last. Over the past few weeks, there had been talk around town that Robert had been sleeping with the wife of a male plantation worker and Three Forks employee, who happened to be there at the Duke joint that evening. But it wasn't just a rumour, with Honeyboy confirming that it definitely occurred. Robert and the man's wife had been sleeping together for some time, but Robert had actually first been staying with the woman's sister in Greenwood as they were first seeing each other. But when the man's wife came by to visit her sister every Monday, she would end up sneaking off with Robert and they would end up in bed together. While the husband suspected something was going on between them, he pretended like he didn't know and wouldn't confront Robert in person. Instead, he would snicker with his maids behind Robert's back about how he would get his revenge. Honeyboy and others close to Robert. Tried to warn him and told him to stop going around to the woman's house. But he just wouldn't listen. Robert however was crazy about her. She was a very attractive woman. And on this very night. Robert was said to have sang directly to her. And began flirting with her in front of others. Causing tensions to flare. Between Robert and the husband. And making her feel very uncomfortable. Accepting this gig. And sleeping with the man's wife would be a mistake that would ultimately cost Robert his life. Robert's arrogance was at an all-time high that evening, and no one could dent his confidence or get in his way. From the first-hand accounts of those that were there that night, including Honeyboy, the story goes that Robert had been disrespecting the woman's husband, as the man was known to be a bit of a snitch, and often spoke under his breath about Robert. When Robert stepped up to the bar to order a bottle of his favourite whiskey, unbeknown to Robert... The rival husband had intercepted the bottle before it got to him and had tampered with his drink as the seal on the whiskey bottle had been broken by the woman's husband and his friend. Robert was then given the bottle by a female barmaid and as he went to take a swig, another performer there that night, known as Sonny Boy Williamson, had noticed the seal had been broken and quickly slapped the whiskey out of Robert's hand, fearing it had been laced with poison. It was at this point that Robert's ego got the better of him, and he was furious that Sonny Boy had tried to waste his $7 bottle of his favourite whiskey. He glared at Sonny and told him never to do it again, and Robert picked it back up, poured himself a glass, and sculled a fair amount of it, taking numerous sips, even sculling some out of the bottle. Then, an argument between Robert and the rival husband broke out, over Robert eyeing off the man's wife when performing. So Robert was dragged out of the juke joint by the man and his friends to exchange words. Not too long after his first few swigs did Robert start to feel ill and was found moments later by Honeyboy, slumped over sitting in someone's car. No one at the time knew who did it but there was no doubt that Robert had been poisoned. Honey Boy believes while Robert was slumped in the chair feeling ill they offered him more drinks but Robert refused and he was asked instead to come back in and try to keep playing. At around 11pm that evening, Robert came back in and tried to play a song or two, but struggled to hold it together and only made it through half a song. It was clear that he was no good and something was up. Robert could be heard in the bathroom coughing and moaning, and was even said to have been coughing up blood. Robert was then put into a room in a nearby plantation house for the night, where he was heard howling like a wolf, and crawling around the floor in pain the following day at around 2:30 p.m. as Robert's condition wasn't improving honeyboy drove Robert to a house where he could rest in a small village called Baptist town where honeyboy had been staying from the time of being poisoned to his death it took Robert 3 long painful grueling days to succumb to the illness caused by the mysterious poison before he died robert left a note that read jesus of nazareth King of Jerusalem, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he will call me from the grave. As Robert was dying, he would be bleeding from the mouth, vomiting, and suffering from extreme abdominal pain, forcing him into a convulsive state, where he eventually passed away. Robert was pronounced dead on the 16th of August, 1938, and was just 27 years old. He died alone in that little old yellow house, with no doctor seeing him at all. In those days... You needed money to call out a doctor and robert appeared to have little money to his name perhaps due to him giving a majority of it to his son claude instead it was never discovered what poison was used and who was responsible for poisoning robert johnson despite the woman's husband being interviewed by authorities as well as those that handed robert the whiskey an investigation wasn't carried out properly with no autopsy completed and robert's death would go completely unpunished Despite many close to him believing, they knew who did it, and that it was in fact caused by the husband of Robert's mistress. Some believe that the investigation wasn't pushed along, as Robert sung the devil's blues, or simply that the African Americans were not placed under the same importance as white people, and documentation wasn't kept. While it's believed the woman's husband confessed many years later, he was still not prosecuted for murdering Robert. Not until the year 1967 would his actual death certificate surface after musicologist Gail Wardlow discovered it. What was disappointing, however, was the lack of effort placed into the investigation and his death certificate as his cause of death was simply labelled no doctor. Robert's death certificate had also claimed Robert had been a musician for 10 years, suggesting he was 16 or 17 when he first started out. It also stated that he was 26 years old, despite being born in 1911. The informant on the document read Jim Moore, who was not actually a real person. It was in fact his brother-in-law, who didn't want to be identified by his real name. Robert's mother was believed to be interviewed by music historian Alan Lomax when she said, Some wicked girl or her boyfriend gave him poison and wasn't no doctor in the world could save him. So they say. When I went in where he at, he layin' up in bed with his guitar across his breast. Soon as he saw me, he say, Mama, you all I been waitin' for. Here, he say, and he give me his guitar. Take and hang this thing on the wall, cause I done pass all that by. That what got me messed up, Mama. It's the devil's instrument, just like you said. And I don't want it no more. And he died while I was hanging his guitar on the wall. Many alternative stories of how Robert died arose over the years, such as he was found dead on the side of the road after being taken down by a lynch mob, that he took his own life, he was struck by lightning, shot, bashed to death, or even run over. One claim that hasn't been completely ruled out was that Robert had congenital syphilis, which is a disease that is given to you from birth after your mother passes it on to you, while another possible scenario that has been raised is a disease called Marfan Syndrome which is a connective tissue disorder which can become fatal when it causes aortic dissection, where blood flows between the aortic wall, causing the layers to split apart and causing severe chest and back pain and eventual death in those times. Without a proper examination or investigation ever being carried out, it's hard to say what the exact cause was. But for now, most first-hand accounts point to Robert being poisoned by the jealous husband at the Three Forks. It has been suggested that the poison used could have been strychnine, which is a highly toxic bitter and colourless poison or pesticide, usually used to kill rats or mice and other small vertebrae pests. This, however, has been strongly rejected by author Tom Graves, who believes that the poison would have killed in hours rather than days, and that it would have produced an odour and specific taste that would immediately reveal if he was being poisoned, even when mixed with whiskey. Authors of Upjump the Devil, Bruce Cornforth and Gail Dean Wardlow, claim that the poison was instead an which is found in mothballs and can be dissolved. They believe this was a common poison used in the South at the time, but the only downside to their claim was that it was rare to cause death, unless there were some underlying issues with Robert, which they believe he did have, claiming he had an ulcer with esophageal varices, which reacted when poison was added, causing hemorrhaging. But once again, without that autopsy report not being undertaken, it's impossible to reveal the truth of what poison was actually used to kill him. The resting place of Robert Johnson has never actually been confirmed, but some say he is buried at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church near Morgan City, Mississippi. On the edge of the highway, 15 miles outside of Greenwood, where a memorial gravestone can be found in his honour and a line from Me and the Devil Blues can be found inscribed on the gravestone, reading, You may bury my body all down by the highway side, so my old evil spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. And also inscribed on it is the King of the Delta Blues. In another location at Payne's Chapel in Quido, Mississippi, local musicians claim that Robert is instead buried there, with a small plaque sitting on the ground, placed there by a local rock band named The Tombstones, after one of Robert's ex-girlfriends claimed that the unmarked spot was where he was buried. Another theory suggests he is buried near Greenwood at Little Zion Church, under a pecan tree in the cemetery. While the fourth scenario was that Robert was buried closer to where he died, near Greenwood, in what is called a Potter's Field, where drifters and convicts with no money or insurance would be buried. Johnny Shine said that he couldn't believe it when he heard of his old friend's passing, and he would maintain that he would often feel Robert's presence with him, and always found himself scanning the crowd, looking for him when he performed. Without a doubt, wherever Robert was laid to rest, his spirit is strong and influential as ever, as it will be for many generations to come. Rumours of course spread at the time, with many claiming Robert paid for his life exactly two years after he made the deal with the devil, and that the devil was disguised as a man that evening and poisoned Robert, taking his soul back to the depths of hell with him. What was most devastating was that Don Law, who had helped produce Robert's 29 songs, was set to book him in for a third session, only to discover that Robert had died. A talent scout and record producer from Columbia Records by the name of John Hammond had also planned to invite Robert to perform in New York at his show called Spirituals to Swing, an evening of American Negro music, and it was designed to showcase the large mix of African American music from jazz, swing, and the blues in a huge extravagant show. John was a well-respected and successful scout, who discovered the likes of Billie Holiday and Count Bassey, and much later would discover the likes of Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. He was very passionate about bringing unheard talents and black musicians to the wider populated cities and giving them a chance to shine and giving musicians a chance to be given exposure that would otherwise be separated from the mainstream. John Hammond had his assistant scout travel to Greenwood, Mississippi to track down Robert for the show, only for the young scout to arrive and learn that he had died and that he had already been gone for months now. John Hammond was devastated for Johnson as this would undoubtedly been his big break to make it outside of the Mississippi and perhaps even the world. Robert Johnson's now vacant spot was filled with another blues musician named Big Bill Brunsey, but Hammond, who was a huge fan of Robert Johnson's work, didn't want to leave him out of the show completely and thought he still deserved the opportunity for his voice to be heard in some way. At 8.30pm on a Friday evening, The 23rd of December 1938 at Carnage Hall in Midtown Manhattan, New York. The audience filed in to enjoy a brilliant show hosted by John Hammond himself. At one point of the show a phonograph was brought out and situated at centre stage. The lights were dimmed and a single spotlight beamed down upon it. John Hammond walked out. He informed the audience that the musician they were about to hear had sadly passed away and then he placed a Robert Johnson record on. For the whole audience to enjoy. Robert's song Preachin' Blues. up Jump the Devil was played. Followed by the B-side. Love in Vain. As the audience sat there stunned at first. Followed by them clapping their hands. And tapping their feet along to the infectious beat of the songs. And silky guitar skills. Of Robert Johnson. When the record had finished playing. The audience stood and applauded. Whistles and cheers rung out. And from the grave. Robert had become a star. The crowd absolutely loved it and it would be after this concert that Robert Johnson's records saw a boost in sales and popularity for a short period of time. But due to the lack of background knowledge of Johnson, and his death of course, the hype unfortunately faded for some time, and his music and legacy seemed destined to be forgotten. Had he survived and played the gig in person, he would have perhaps become one of the biggest musicians of the 1940s, and well into the 50s and so on. As Johnson faded off, a fellow blues musician named Muddy Waters would arise to take his spot and came to be one of the greatest of all time. Muddy was inspired by the music of Robert Johnson, as were the other rising blues and African American stars over the 40s to the 60s, such as B.B. King. But despite these musicians being inspired by his music, people who listened to these artists weren't aware that they were basically listening to Robert Johnson as one of their biggest influences. However, during the 1950s, white college students would find themselves going through a thrift shop craze, where they came across bargain boxes of assorted 78-inch records, which included many Robert Johnson records. This started a craze with Robert Johnson once again, and in order to cement Robert's place as a legend, and thinking that the people needed to hear more of him, John Hammond put together a re-release album of some of Robert's recordings, called King of the Delta Blues Singers. When Bob Dylan signed to Columbia Records, John Hammond would play Robert's music for Dylan, and he was impressed. Bob Dylan claimed that without Johnson, he wouldn't have been able to come up with so many lines for his songs. This chain effect continued to influence upcoming bands and musicians such as Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, Alexis Corner, Eric Clapton with Cream, Bonnie Rat, Brian Jones, and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, and even the Red Hot Chili Peppers all of which would cover many of Robert's songs and write music inspired by similar themes discussed in Robert's music, with mentions of alcoholism, sex, women troubles and the devil all transforming into the genre that would come to be known as rock and roll. While the way he sung, harmonised and played the guitar like a piano or making it howl like the wind would further inspire rock music and the blues. Eric Clapton was a mega fan of Johnson's and said, quote, He motivated me to become a musician and I think he's the greatest folk blues guitar player that ever lived and the greatest singer, greatest writer. While Keith Richards likened the work of Robert Johnson and the way he played guitar like he was playing a piano to Bach. Keith also enjoyed Robert's eerie voice and the devil references in his music and felt like Robert laid the template for rock and roll to be born. Although Robert was gone, his legacy continued to live on ...through these legendary musicians in their own right. Sadly, Sunhouse's best mate and mentor to Robert Johnson, Willie Brown... ...passed away in 1952, age 55, after succumbing to heart disease. In August 1967, Ike Zimmerman, who was perhaps Robert's greatest influence and mentor... ...sadly died age 60 from a heart attack as well. While he performed around the Mississippi, Zimmerman never did get the opportunity to record his own music... In 1980, Robert was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame, which was followed up by his induction into the inaugural Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, becoming one of five musicians inducted that evening. On October 19, 1988, Robert Johnson's first mentor and the man who pushed him to leave town and to become a better musician, Sun House, sadly passed away at the age of 86 from cancer of the larynx. Sunhouse had a long career at times fading in the industry, but managed to stage a comeback. He married five times over his lifetime, and also had a song preaching the blues, inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame, much later after his death, in 2017. In 1990, Spin Magazine labelled Robert Johnson, their number one artist for 35 Guitar Gods, on the 52nd anniversary of his death. From 1990 to 1991, Robert also won a Grammy for Best Historical Album and a Blues Music Award for the album, The Complete Recordings, which was a double compilation album, including various versions of all of Robert Johnson's recordings. It sold over 1 million copies, and in 1992, it would be inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame also. Also in 1991, a documentary called The Search for Robert Johnson, hosted by the son of John Hammond, was released, featuring extensive insight into the life of Robert Johnson, and is one that I highly recommend checking out. On April 20th, 1992, Robert's former travelling musician pal, Johnny Shines, sadly passed away aged 76, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in the US. Johnny had continued to perform and gig around the country, and even released his own music. Later in 1992, he was also inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. In 1995, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame named its 500 songs that shaped rock and roll, with four of Robert's being included, with Sweet Home Chicago, Crossroad Blues, Hell Hound On My Trail, and Love In Vain all being named. In 1998, Crossroad Blues was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame, while in the year 2000, he was inducted into the Mississippi Musicians Hall of Fame. In 2003, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Robert Johnson fifth on their 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time list, which he later dropped to 71 in 2015. Also in 2003, the album The Complete Recordings was put into the National Recording Registry recognising the cultural importance of his music which reflected history and life in the US during the 1930s. In 2004, Eric Clapton released an album titled Me and Mr. Johnson, featuring Eric Clapton covering 14 of Robert's songs, all of which he had covered heavily over the years as one of Johnson's biggest fans. The album went on to sell around 2 million copies and charted within the top 10 in 15 countries, including the US, UK and the Australian Jazz and Blues chart. In 2006... Robert was awarded the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2010, 72 years after Robert had died, he was ranked 9th by Gibson in the Top 50 Greatest Guitarists of All Time. Proving that Robert's legacy was well and truly not forgotten, and proving the significance he has had on music so many years on from his death. Sadly, on the 29th of August 2011, another of Robert Johnson's close friends and travelling companions, who was one of the last people by Robert's side, in Dave Honeyboy Edwards, passed away at the age of 96, after succumbing to congestive heart failure at 3am in the morning. Honeyboy had been continuing to gig at festivals, and perform the blues for all these years. He briefly retired due to ill health in July of 2011, but was set to return to the stage and perform at midday the day he passed away. Back in 1996, Dave Honeyboy Edwards was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. He received a number of awards for his contribution to blues music over the years and even took home a Grammy in 2008 for Best Traditional Blues Album for the last of the Great Mississippi Delta Bluesmen, Live in Dallas. And in 2010, he received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award robert johnson's story in relation to the myth of the devil at the crossroads would be the source for many trends in pop culture including tv shows movies and books in the tv show supernatural the story of robert johnson is told out of context with the devil appearing in the shape of a woman and kissing robert and hellhounds chasing him to his death robert would also become the fifth member of the infamous 27 club that now includes the members brian jones Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, and Jimi Hendrix, just to name a few. To qualify for this club, you must die at the age of 27, under suspicious or mysterious circumstances, usually through murder, suicide, or unknown causes. Robert's son, Claude Johnson, went on to become a truck driver, and had six children of his own, who have also gone on to have children of their own. Unfortunately, Claude passed away on the 30th of June 2015, aged 83. Robert's grandson Stephen Johnson now looks to carry on his father and his grandfather's legacy, and along with many historians, they have managed to unearth many pieces to the mysterious puzzle that is Robert Johnson's life story. Today, not many of the old plantations, duke joints and buildings still stand, including Three Forks, the place where Robert Johnson met his fate. It is now hardly noticeable and was destroyed by a tornado that ripped through the area many years later. For many years, it was believed that no photographs survived featuring Robert Johnson until a couple of them surfaced in the 1980s. This included the photos known as the Dime Store Photo and the Studio Portrait, where Robert can be seen posing with a cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth while holding his guitar, which was since published in Vanity Fair magazine. Most recently however, in 2020, a third image was discovered of Robert smiling at the camera while in a photo booth, and have since been published by Vanity Fair in May 2020 on the front cover. There are said to be a couple more photos of Robert out there, but have not been released by the Johnson estate. Robert would never once be caught on video however, so unfortunately, those of us today will never see him in live action. While Robert Johnson left this earth way too soon, and arguably became the star he always wanted to be, long after he was gone, there's no doubting that his legacy still lives on today, and the significance and influence he has had on the music we have all grown up listening to, signifies that he is not only one of the greatest blues musicians of all time, but one of the greatest musicians, period. Robert influenced legends like Eric Clapton, Keith Richards, Led Zeppelin, and even Jimi Hendrix. His music spoke of taboo topics such as the devil and hellhounds, sex, and the classic blues style of singing about your woman troubles, despite knowing it would get him offside with the Christians in the Mississippi, and the way he played the guitar and wrote his lyrics would form the basis for the greatest genre of music of all time, rock and roll. From what we do know about Robert Johnson's life, he lived an incredibly interesting existence Travelling from place to place as a free man, playing with mates on the road and sharing love with many beautiful women along the way. Despite his many battles with losing two partners and children during childbirth, being shunned by a community and his mentors, being raised in a harsh environment with a lack of a father figure and losing the right to see his only living son, Robert managed to put this pain and anger into his music, creating 29 masterpieces that were all left here to enjoy. Whether he got his incredible, seemingly overnight talents from the devil at the crossroads, or from being mentored by Ike Zimmerman in the graveyard, there is no questioning how talented this man was, and how sad his downfall would become, when his way with the ladies, and his problem with the drink, would ultimately come back to bite him in the end. Had Robert survived that ordeal, one could only imagine, would he have risen higher as a mainstream star, or was it simply his fate? One thing is for certain, A legend that is Robert Johnson will never die and will continue to live on through his music for many generations to come as it has done in the past. Thanks everyone for listening to part 2 of the Robert Johnson story. I hope you really enjoyed that one. For more information regarding this episode including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcasts or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon, where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again, thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.